Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I also have an audible on the African-American athlete on Amazon. Uh, I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, The Institute of the Black World, and Politics in the 1970s, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. And our summer, oh, man, good to be, summer, summer series. Back. Yeah. Summer, summer series. <laughs> it's been a, a lot happening in the sports world over the last week or so since we last recorded. Um, lots of uh, you know continued protests, folks in the street. Uh, we have witnessed uh, college football coaches continue to fumble um, their uh, money by underestimating and, and saying all the wrong things about Black Lives Matter. Um, and in addition, we've watched all the sports leagues in the country uh, give Juneteenth off to their employees. And that is really the subject of today's podcast. And since me and Lou are very much 20th century historians and uh, really focus on sports and politics, we needed really the expertise of a 19th century historian. And we, I just happen to know one. My colleague, Vanessa Holden, is an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, uh, and she is the author of the forthcoming book, Surviving Southampton, which looks at women and children in the Nat Turner Rebellion. Welcome to the Black Athlete Podcast, Vanessa. Hey there. Glad to be here. So, you know, we as we talked about in the pre, uh, you know, in the in the prep for this podcast, this is a free-flowing kind of exchange. And we want to give our listeners a quick uh, opportunity to, to for them, for you to explain what your book, your forthcoming book that's coming out in 2021 uh, is looking at uh, before we delve in deeply into Juneteenth and the sports world. Sure. So if you've heard of an American slave rebellion, you probably heard the name Nat Turner, uh, but you might not know very much about Southampton County itself, all of the enslaved and free people of color who live there, and the way that the community really produced the rebellion that we call Nat Turner's Rebellion. Uh, I like to say that if enslaved and free men were the infantry and the cavalry of the rebellion, Enslaved and free women were the support uh, supply line and the intelligence network of the rebellion. And you you can't have a successful military operation without both of those things. Um, so the book really looks at the ways that the entire community relied on resistive strategies uh, to support the rebellion's effort and then to survive the rebellion after it was put down by militia about two days in, in 1831. Um, in fact, the Black community of Southampton County uh, manages to hide Nat Turner for about two months after the rebellion. Um, he's undetectable in the county, thanks to the community that's supporting him. Um, so I look at women, free and enslaved. I look at the broader free community, including indigenous people in the county. I look at enslaved and free children's roles in the rebellion, uh, really to build a, a fuller picture of the way that Black culture really is resistive culture, that it is, survival is resistance, resistance is survival. 
Oh, I think that's a, a, a well, one, I cannot wait to read this book. I've heard about this, obviously, because we're colleagues. But the other piece is I think this is really important to think about in the context of our kind of contemporary protests, right, where when we when we teach, for instance, when I teach civil rights movement, one of the mistakes uh, the traditional kind of mainstream narrative, right, uh, from uh, Montgomery from to Memphis, right, focuses on these kind of male leaders, whether it's King or Malcolm X. Um, uh, but really, when you start to look at what made the civil rights movement successful, it was in particular these communities, right, that the the kind of networks and organizations that were often women led and women inspired uh, that do this. And I think this is an important kind of correction to the Nat Turner history is, which is, which is, you know, often about this singular figure who saw, you know, blood on the corn and got a call to lead a rebellion. Uh, and it's less about this broader community. And I think this is going to be an important, important piece. And we're so excited to have you on this podcast. And I'm super excited that you're my colleague at Kentucky. I'm just going to brag yeah. on you one more time. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I add that this, this book is honestly, it's going to, it's going to do so well. Um, and I'm so jealous whenever um, I hear people talking about their work because it sounds like you get to do a lot of archival work. Can you explain to the listeners that process? Like how does one go about uh, getting this research done for such, such a, for a project like this? Sure. So Natural Rebellion, it was not the first American slave rebellion. It was not the largest. Uh, it was not, didn't even result in the most deaths, uh, but it happened in the midst of Andrew Jackson's administration uh, when a lot of people thought uh, down to the most common of white men were on the rise. And the fact that enslaved people managed to murder nearly 60 white men, women, and children really shocked America's system. Uh, so the rebellion's super famous. In fact, there's been a published collection of documents uh, by Henry Irving Tregel since the mid 70s. And a lot of the documentation from court records to newspaper records to even Nat Turner's jailhouse confession, um, often published as uh, Nat Turner's confessions, uh, have been in print and widely available. What I did and what I do uh, is go back to the original source, not just the transcribed source, uh, and really look not just at the trials of suspected rebels, but but everybody who appears in a court docket for that day to try to piece together uh, where each person in the community fits in. I then take into account a heavy dose of Black oral tradition uh, that has preserved uh, a number of very important stories, particularly of women's lives. And then I actually have been down to the county itself. Uh, its roads haven't changed that much since 1831. Uh, and, and walk around space, uh, you know, move through space and time and think about, well, well, what would it have meant to have to get from this farm to that bridge in a certain amount of time? Um, so it's really a, a three-pronged approach from working in space to looking at documents other people have looked at to actually listening to Black people, which is something that uh, not no one in this crowd, in this present podcast, would have trouble with, but often established historians have had trouble doing. Wow. An another question, and this kind of gets to where we're going today, is so much about, since we're talking about Juneteenth, is about memory. How does the memory of Nat Turner operate in that space, like in Southampton, uh, on the one hand, and then outside of Southampton, like in the South and the United States? 
One of the reasons most Black people have heard of Nat Turner is because he's a folk hero. He, he, in some ways, there's a historical person, and then there's this archetype, uh, you know, forever rebel, forever kind of lurking and waiting to cause uh, trouble for the power structure. Um, and so on the one hand, there is that folk hero status. Um, there's actually a, a phrase that you'll see in uh, what are called ex-slave narratives taken down by the WPA, sharp enough to get by old Nat. And it's this way that uh, African-Americans would talk about white people in the community that, you know, they're bright, <laughs> but they ain't not sharp enough to get by old Nat. Um, <laughs> wow. uh, okay. Okay. Uh, so there's that, but then there's also this warning that comes with that story that, uh, there is a thriving black community that survived that rebellion, but there are these empty spaces uh, left behind uh, that people were executed, people were sold from the state. So there's also this warning. And recently when I was in Southampton with one of Turner's descendants, he shared that growing up, the the women in his family would warn him, you know, don't get, don't get, don't get caught up in that Turner mess um, because they were worried for him and for his life. Um, so there's a there's there's both a, a caution with Nat Turner, but also a, a, a pride, a pride in Nat Turner. Wow. No, that's fantastic. I, I think that's an excellent, I think, Blue's question in this story of Nat Turner is an excellent leading because, you know, the cornerstone of Nat Turner's rebellion is about freedom, right? And about liberation and how can the enslaved uh, liberate themselves as they, uh, uh, you know, from slavery. Uh, and, and this kind of gets us in some ways to Juneteenth, right? Because one of the things that, uh, we, you know, we like to, uh, that has been bantered around, I think, in the recent kind of public discourses has been, you know, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves uh, or, or Republicans freed the slaves and this kind of thing. And I think what Nat Turner's rebellion gets at, uh, as well as the broader kind of uh, understanding of, of 19th century and really all of African American history is that black folks really work for their own liberation and emancipation. Uh, and but they also celebrated these formal reckonings. Right. And Juneteenth. And one of the things that we know as African-American historians is that black folks celebrated emancipation. Um, and so while we have Vanessa here and her expertise, can you talk to us a little bit about the varied kind of emancipation days and emancipation day celebrations that we see across the Americans in the 19th century? So emancipation comes to different states and different regions at different times. Juneteenth is a part of the era of emancipation uh, in the 1860s into the 1870s, but Early on in America's history, some states chose to join the Union as free states. Some gradually monumented enslaved people like New Jersey and New York. So there were celebrations in New York on July 4th to commemorate uh, the end of slavery there officially, completely in the 1820s. Um, so there are all of these regional moments, but also what you're really getting at, there's there are also a number of personal moments of liberation that enslaved people constantly let uh, the federal government know what they thought about slavery by voting with their feet. They fled, they went truant, um, absconded from bondage really continually from colonial times all the way through the 19th century. So by the time we get to the American Civil War, one of the most powerful 
ways uh, that emancipation became manifest is that African-Americans picked up from you know whole plantation quarters at a time and fled to union held cities, fled to union camps, fled to uh, union occupied areas in different states and uh, really began living free even before the military was ready to deal with them, even before the federal <laughs> government could catch up. It's really their actions that actually forced a federal response that these generals were like, what are we supposed to do with these people? Um, and that's where that term contraband of war comes from. They have to do these kind of uh, legal gymnastics to make it okay to keep enslaved people behind union lines. Uh, so in free people were set on living free, whether or not the government was ready to catch up, whether or not Lincoln was ready to say the war was about slavery or not. Um, in 1862, Lincoln famously in September of 1862 issues the Emancipation Proclamation and gives rebelling states 100 days to come back to the Union, after which point uh, he proclaims that anyone held in bondage in those states will henceforth and forever be free. Um, no one come, came back. Uh, so that <laughs> meant, <laughs> none, of, none of them took him up on it. So that meant you know, everywhere that the Union Army went, they were going to bring freedom with them. Now, everywhere the Union Army already was, and everywhere where there was slavery that had not left the Union, like Kentucky, for example, uh, the proclamation did not apply. So there are tiny pockets of Virginia, for example, that stay up on watch night, uh, you know, at the end of December, waiting for the new year, waiting for emancipation, only to figure out legally a couple days later, well, actually, no, you're not free. Um, but to people two counties over that haven't been occupied <laughs> yet, they're, they're going to be free. Um, so there are these, you know, in, in South Carolina, there's actually um, uh, the co South Carolina coast was taken fairly early on in the war and African-Americans wait up and they're, and they're waiting for this moment to celebrate emancipation. Um, so I, I often say, you know, there's this kind of legal piece of emancipation, but then there's the actual living free that African Americans do, no matter what the government or the army has to say about it. Um, and they really do force the government's hand. Without their actions, there would have been no, uh, there would have been no 13th Amendment. Um, of additional importance is that the Emancipation Proclamation allowed for the recruitment of Black troops. Uh, there were already some Black folks serving in the Navy. The maritime world was a little more integrated at the time. But that allowed not just for people to fight by fleeing, but to pick up a gun um, mm -hmm. and in uniform fight for freedom. You know, Black troops knew that they were part of a, an army of liberation, whether or not the army believed they were an army of liberation. They, that's <laughs> what they were doing. That's what they were about. Um, so the air of emancipation is this time where the federal government is trying to claim the authority to decide who's free and black people are loudly saying, oh, no, 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 we're free. We're just going to go about living that way. And you're going to have to tell us otherwise. Um, after the war, uh, the 13th Amendment is making its way through the ratification process. So we need two thirds of or three fourths of states to sign on. Um, and 
while they're waiting for that to go through, there is a federal military occupation of the former Confederate states. Uh, so in Galveston, Texas, on June 19th, 1865, um, local military leader proclaims, this is it. I'm bringing the promise of the Emancipation Proclamation here to Texas. <laughs> federal government's in charge now. People are free. Um, and there are a lot of competing oral histories about why it took that long. Some formerly enslaved people believed, oh, they were waiting, you know, they were hoping to get another cotton harvest in. Or some people, you know, their enslaver was really being tight-lipped about the reality that they had lost the war. Um, so there are different, you know, farm by farm, plantation by plantation stories. Um, but Black people in Texas were like, this is the day. When he made that when he showed up in Galveston and said, this is it, uh, that's the day we're going to, we're going to decide is for us. And then they like in, in the most brilliantly black way possible came up with their own name for the whole date. (laughs) Juneteenth. That's part of that amazing story. Right. Um, so real quick for our listeners, it's uh, General Gordon Granger uh, coming to Galveston. And and real quick, before we get into to, to, to drill down a bit on Juneteenth, um, one of the things you said that really interests me is like the part where emancipation comes at a different time to Virginia and Kentucky. And also early on when you talk about all these days, um, looking at this a little bit, one of the days that comes up is is Emancipation Day uh, of August first, right? So when when Great Britain uh, ends slavery in, in in the West Indies, and so that gets me to thinking how how this is part of the celebration of the Black Atlantic, and then as you mentioned, the Emancipation Proclamation comes along, right? And that becomes an Emancipation Day where Black folks celebrate. So these are days much like Juneteenth, if we were in the 19th century, that Black folks are celebrating August first, January first. What were they doing in like Virginia, like what's the more common, popular uh, day to celebrate? Because obviously they weren't doing uh, Juneteenth. Yeah, I think over time, uh, different regions have sort of uh, picked out Juneteenth as a day to take on as their own. Um, and it's really, you know, deeply personal to communities. So in Virginia now, um, I don't know that they have like a set date um, I know there are some places that'll have a, a Juneteenth celebration, some places that uh, will kind of fold into watch night services on for New Year's uh, and emancipation celebration. Um, but it it can vary even county to county. So in Kentucky, for example, in the western part of the state, that's a little bit more tied to western Tennessee um, or central Tennessee and Nashville, they celebrate in early August. Uh, Whereas in Lexington on Friday, we'll have a Juneteenth celebration. So it is, it, it, it's, it's been sort of interesting to watch in the contemporary period, more of a, a, a sort of gravitation towards Juneteenth as an important date that out of the many dates in the U.S., folks are, folks are tending to gravitate towards Juneteenth. I, I want to say a couple of things because I'm, I'm, you know, not only do I work at the University of Kentucky, but I grew up in Lexington. And I think that one of the things that's your point about watch night service is extremely important. I think we should emphasize this is that that, you know, the way that a lot of communities uh, folded a lot of these things together is that Emancipation Day 
and New Year's become synonymous in a lot of folks. And and as a kid who was, um, you know, before you're old enough to go out, uh, you have to go with your parents and grandparents to church on a New Year's Eve. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's an interesting thing. And I, I, you know, as I've gotten older, I always remember, you know, uh, folks getting up and testifying and right. Talking about their year, right. Like as in their life. And it was always this thing I didn't understand, uh, when we should just be counting, waiting on the ball to drop, right. Like this is the kind of logic, the kind of secular logic. And I think really where the, a lot of those ideas, as a, as a historian, it starts to make sense is that, oh, this is really not just about New Year's and renewal, but it's also about reflecting on emancipation, right? So the part of that testimony is this longer tradition of people telling this story about from, you know, surviving these trials and tribulations and that the Lord will carry them. And so this is an interesting kind of thing. And then going back to Lou's point about celebrating in August in the West Indies, I had worked in Florida and a lot of people celebrate, have this similar thing about Emancipation Day, but it's very much tied to Haiti, right? So where the Haitian Revolution is Emancipation Day is governing a lot a lot of the politics of, say, South Florida and Central Florida uh, across the Black diaspora there. So I think this notion that there are all these kind of Emancipation Days, all of which now have been... Uh, uh, for lots of reasons that we want to discuss a little bit more, folded into this great Juneteenth. I will say this as a historian, I think it's amazing that the Galveston, Texas uh, newspaper on June 21st, 19, uh, 1865 has a note, has this official message. You can actually see this this uh, this message to the people that are saying that they are now uh, are free, that all slaves are free. And so there's a sense that, um, that we have this real, like, your point about oral history and about the way people remember about why, but we do have this really great documentation in the local news. Like this is important information that we should put forth for our literate population in 1865. And almost immediately within the next year or two, you see it being referred to in the press in Texas as Juneteenth. And I think that's amazing because we like this automatically just hang on to this this fantastic kind of black naming tradition uh, from the very beginning. Um, but that leads us to this other question, right? And I think, uh, Vanessa, you, you finished your point here uh, with this idea about this contemporary moment. And, and what are the factors and variables that lead to this contemporary moment in which we in 2020 are, there's a push to make Juneteenth a national holiday, and so how do we see that we've all coalesced around this in this like how what has happened between like the you know late 19th century uh over the 20th that makes this Texas based tradition now more national. I think that there are a number of factors at play. Um so there's the 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 kind of Texas diaspora is one is one piece of the, of the pie. Uh, I'm I'm from originally from Southern California, and the entire black side of my family all came from Texas uh, to California. And so I grew up knowing of knowing about Juneteenth because I come from people from Texas. Uh, and so this Texas diaspora, thanks to the the Great Migration, the Second Great Migration, brings the holiday with them. So there's there's that piece of it. Um, I think that given the contemporary moment of now going on three weeks of sustained uh, sustained protests against uh, police brutality, uh, inequality, and really a, 
a calling out of racism that has honestly permeated some industries that I, I kind of never, I would not have predicted uh, that would be asking questions, you know, about race, <laughs> racism, uh, thinking about it as embedded in institutions instead of just individual acts of malice. Um, so there, there's that. Uh, and it just so happens that there's this very black holiday that uh, in in these, you know, reading groups that are forming, folks are, you know, learning about Juneteenth <laughs> for the first time, uh, right? Really having to, to think like, oh, wow, there's this whole thing I, I didn't even know about. Um, and then I, I also think because we, because the story is so, um, the story is really a rambling, messy, uh, evolving process towards emancipation. Um, and then, of course, the messy definition of what freedom can mean uh, for African Americans post Civil War that there is a craving for, for a date where it can be celebrated. Like that, that we should have a, you know, there should be a time that we can celebrate this. And I think the story of Texas is is really attractive because embedded in the story of Juneteenth is this delay, this deferment that's unjust, right? And so the celebration is even that much more defiant that, you know, you you tried to keep it from us, uh, but, <laughs> but we're going to have a day. I mean, I will add, you know, there are celebrations in, in New York uh, starting in the late 1820s after emancipation comes to completion there that take place on July 4th. So Black people turned Independence Day into their own emancipation uh, celebrations. I've noticed that, that that is not on the table uh, for, <laughs> re, for for remodeling, you know, for the current moment. Um, right. Yeah. I was, you know. was going to say, because uh, New York, I think just today tweeted out that, that um, Juneteenth is going to be like a paid holiday or something. And I had quote tweeted it. I was like, wait a minute, they... On 1827, I believe it's like 1827, July 4th, right? That's when they end slavery. And so part of the interesting conversation about Juneteenth is the lack of conversation about slavery other places are having, right? It all goes to, well, that's, you know, that's Texas. That's when they got the last order. But it doesn't explain, right, New York. It doesn't, you know, and what what Black folks used to do um, with, with celebrating their Emancipation Day or Emancipation Day of the West Indies or Emancipation Proclamation and how this becomes a very political moment for Black people all across the country to use like public space, right? To say, wait a minute here, right? We're, this is this is America. You're promising these things in the Constitution that you're not delivering. And we're going to use this day not only to commemorate the ending of slavery, but also push for, right? a fight for our rights to end for slavery throughout. And then afterwards, what Juneteenth comes to represent with Texas is the same thing. Post-emancipation, okay, now you've taken away our rights and we're going to still hold this, this Juneteenth day and we're going to fight and fight and fight. And it's recognized in Texas as a black day uh, from the state uh, very, very early on where, where people are getting that day off. And black folks in Texas are not only turning it into a, a party, a feast, a celebration, but also an opportunity to claim public space and fight for their rights. And I think in 2020, that becomes such a powerful moment, right? With everything going on, I think Friday, this 2020 Juneteenth is going to be very powerful. Um, 
because it's still black folks out there not only commemorating the end of slavery, but also using this this as a public moment to to push for the rights. It, what, can I, well, I, go ahead, Vanessa. Yeah. Well, and if you're going to openly in public space or with paid time off, acknowledge and celebrate the abolition of slavery in the U.S., then you're also acknowledging and admitting that its end is something to celebrate, that that you're acknowledging that it's this abhorrent, morally bankrupt, evil system. Um, and you're acknowledging that that is something we should take the time to be happy is gone. Um, and into the early 20th century, I mean, you're exactly right. There are huge parades, um, often that include people who were formerly enslaved, um, it, at this moment where there's a huge public battle over the memory of the era of emancipation, uh, where, you know, if you listen to the United Daughters of the Confederacy, whose headquarters <laughs> was just on fire in Richmond, they'll tell you, you know, it's this horrible, sad era where we had to, you know, fend off Negro rule that was, you know, barbaric and horrible. Um, so this, this fight, you know, all those people putting down those monuments were about saying, no, 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 we're going to re-remember this moment um, of triumph for black people. So I think that there's, that there's some of that history is also a part of why Juneteenth is so attractive right now that, you know, why is it that we have not taken time out as a country to say right. we're happy slavery has gone. And it's like, well, then to do that, you would have to admit that it was a bad thing. And there's been right. about, you know, there's been a couple hundred years of trying to pretend like it wasn't, it wasn't. that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Well, can, I, can I ask the follow? Oh, sorry, Derek. Let me ask no, this quick follow up because this is I've been wrestling with this for uh, a few days now. Can you have a Juneteenth? Let's say we recognize Juneteenth as a national holiday. Can you, let's say, recognize Juneteenth as a national holiday and still have Confederate monuments? Because to me, those two don't go. Those two don't go together, right? Like, um, and I think part of you have this, the, like, let's say Texas specifically, this growth of Confederate monuments, which really ignores the history of slavery and that Juneteenth celebration. So do you think there's, there, there's a possibility that you can have both? Uh, if there's a possibility, uh, a miracle <laughs> will make it happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's so, a bad question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting to me, the, the, the kind of nitty gritty fights over public commemoration. Um, so for example, in Southampton County today and their County seat, uh, they have a giant obelisk uh, commemorating the Confederacy. Um, and it's ironically right across the street from the boyhood home of the Union General that's from Southampton County. Um, but they also have a street named Blackhead Signpost. Uh, and it, it marks, it terminates at the point where after the Matt Turner's rebellion, uh, the militia put people's heads on pikes to warn, wow. to warn of what would happen to you. And there are people whose address is, you know, like one, two, three blackhead signpost road. Oh. Um, wow. So I think, you know, people want to talk about structural racism uh, and get into it, that there are literal structures, like actual streets and pavement and brick and mortar um, objects that are more than just a symbol. Um, and so, I think that there will be some lingering monuments uh, if it becomes a national holiday or not. Um, but I'm also interested, right, in what it would mean to reclaim, particularly in Southern cities where these monuments are on like courthouse lawns, 
to like reclaim public space and celebrate emancipation. And these statues will inevitably be there. Uh, I mean, given what we've seen, maybe not for long, because these statues <laughs> have a way of, they've been like tripping and falling and, you know, ending up in ponds. So, you know, they just may not, they may not make it through Juneteenth, uh, no matter what comes down from the government. I, I want to add this point, and I think this is uh, this is a fantastic conversation. It got me thinking about a lot of things. I think one of the things that uh, that we should acknowledge for Juneteenth is that it's not July Fourth. It's not Emancipation Day. I mean, it's not uh, New Year's Day, which was the original Emancipation Day for a lot of places. It, the other thing that is not is. It's also not, you know, Black folks created Memorial Day, right, which was Decoration Day in the aftermath of World War. I mean, not World War. See, I'm a 20th century person. After the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and and then this becomes a Memorial Day and it becomes remembering all our veterans, right? Like this becomes this, it's almost like all lives mattered, like Black people remembering Black soldiers, right? Like it's this really interesting kind of history. Uh, and I think though what's also attractive about Juneteenth is that it's not any of, it's not July 4th. Like we don't have to share that day with anybody else. Um, and I think that's an important piece where emancipation becomes front and center. It's not, uh, as you pointed out in New York, where they're re- trying to reclaim July 4th uh, as part of this emancipation project. Uh, it's not New Year's. Uh, and I think that leads to this kind of celebration. And this is what me and Lucy in the sports world, right? That that really quickly after Juneteenth becomes a uh, an event in Texas, it becomes part and parcel of this broader kind of Texas fair, uh, 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 you know, system that happens throughout the summer. And we see uh, in our little bit of research, we saw that uh, in 1930s, 1936, they're celebrating the centennial of Texas. And so Juneteenth is celebrated. There's like 40,000 people at this celebration in Texas and they're having barbecue and they're having all these events. They're having baseball games. They're having, um, uh, and, and, and Lou points out, right. They have their first interracial, is this an interracial track meet? In, yeah. First interracial track meet, Ralph Metcalf, uh, yeah. Olympian comes down to Dallas. So it's at the Dallas expo. Right. Um, and, and, and looking up this, they got a grant from the federal government to 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 build this hall called Negro Hall, right? And and so you have this huge track meet, you have this huge expo, thousands and thousands of people remains till 1951. But this is part of it. And and I think what's what's so interesting about not only that track, track and field bit, but Juneteenth and sports go hand in hand, right? So so wherever if you start looking up into the 1880s and on, whenever you had a Juneteenth celebration, there's a good chance that there's going to be a black baseball game. Um, where it's putting like two local teams together. Um, and that's just because sports draws in this community. Um, it's such a, a powerful moment for, for all these places. And, and speaking about sports memory and moments, while we have you here, we realized today that the Arthur Ashe statue um, was vandalized with, if I got this correct, White Lives Matter on it. Um, can you give our listeners uh, some history on that, that statue? In Richmond, Virginia, in the sort of post-Civil War build-up, sort of built-up district as the city expands out from its original center, um, the city has a a very prominent avenue called Monument Avenue. Um, And Confederate memorial groups, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, over 
the latter part of the 19th through the beginning of the 20th century put up really massive, massive monuments. And most of them actually sit on top of very, very tall pedestals. It's, it's kind of hard to, to communicate the scale. You know, these are not your local courthouse tiny statue. These are mammoth monuments to Robert E. Lee, Jeb Stewart, uh, Stonewall Jackson, Matthew Fontaine Murray. Uh, I think there's also a Jefferson Davis monument on the road. Uh, and in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, there was a campaign in Richmond to get rid of these monuments that this avenue, you know, voted most beautiful avenue in America multiple years in a row wow. with very, very important pricey houses along it, um, that that something should be done about these monuments, uh, that they're offensive. Uh, and there's a prolonged battle over what should happen to them. Um, and it's not as a simple, uh, it's not as simple, you know, just pick them up and move them there. They're very large. They, they're not going to fit in a museum, for example. Um, and so one thing that happens uh, is a cross street actually crosses in front of what is now the um, used to be the Virginia Historical Society, but is now the Virginia Museum of History and Culture um, and the headquarters, the national headquarters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy is renamed Arthur Ashe Way. Uh, and the city puts up a statue of Arthur Ashe, a Virginian, um, an African-American. So at the end of this long, you know, white, beautiful avenue of uh, giant statues of generals with weapons on horseback, uh, there's Arthur Ashe and he's <laughs> holding a tennis racket in one hand and a book in the other. And he's reading to a group of multiracial children. So that's the that's what his statue looks like. Um so over the course of protests in Richmond um, that have been going on around uh, a black man who in mental health crisis was was murdered by police in Richmond, um, the monuments have been debased. Uh, the governor of Virginia ordered that these monuments be, at least the Robert E. Lee monument be removed. The mayor of Richmond got involved. Uh, of course, you know, not even, you know, maybe a day or two later, the the council for the beautification of the Monument Avenue or something like that, um, <laughs> you know, files a motion to block moving the statues. Um, and then just today, um, a white man with a can of white spray paint walked up to the Arthur Ashe monument and spray painted White Lives Matter on it. Um, and so this is a city that during protests, uh, defaced the history museum sign, but actually succeeded in starting a fire inside the headquarters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Um, and uh, this now mars Arthur Ashe's statue. Um, I should say there are statues of other uh, Black Virginians in Richmond, um, in Jackson Ward, the historic Black neighborhood in Richmond. There's a large uh, uh, Bojangles statue. That's where he's from. Um, he's actually dancing down the stairwell. That's the monument. Um, and then there's a civil rights uh, monument that is facing down the kind of monument alley behind the state house in downtown Richmond. 
um, that includes a number of activists uh, involved in school integration in Virginia. Um, so there's no Nat Turner monument uh, with a sword not or yet. anything like not that. Yet. Uh, not, but yet. There's a, not yet. Put yeah, it out there. The, you know, there's no... There's no Missy Elliott. There's no, uh, no other <laughs> black Virginians, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually was just, you know, I was reading about the Arthur Ashe statue today and I wondered, uh, cause I got a lot of questions from people. Well, wait, why is the daughters, why are the daughters of the Confederacy? Why is their address, you know, Arthur Ashe way? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's, the monument wars are on. Um, I also this saw is, today Aunt Jemima's going away. Uh, Uncle Ben is is getting a revamp. Uh, so this is you know this is moving far beyond just brick and mortar monuments to slavery. This is a this is a really powerful moment, and I think it speaks to it. You know, I think one of the interesting commentaries that we often hear as scholars is that protest doesn't work. Right. Um, mm. That especially in the wake of, you know, the what we describe as the post civil rights era, that we need to simply just vote or we need to, you know, negotiate in various ways, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this the protest is has really pushed the boundaries far beyond pro- police brutality. Right. Like, I think police brutality is still the central issue, but I think that people are now picking off what they see as, as easy targets along the way to addressing this kind of systemic racism within police departments. Right. And so something like Aunt Jemima, who in my lifetime was, was uh, I, I'm old enough to remember when it got a make, when Aunt Jemima got a makeover in the late eighties, right? Like that was a big deal. Um, and to think about that now, we're just like, we're going to get rid of Aunt Jemima altogether after 130 some odd years um, is a very um, uh, interesting moment in our field. We're all three professors. Uh, we've we've witnessed uh, black in the ivory in which people have talked, given their testimony to go back to a concept that we see very common in emancipation days. Uh, um their testimony about the kind of racism and, and, and systemic discrimination and microaggressions, whatever term, whatever very term you would like to use that they experience in higher ed. And we've seen corporate America rapidly uh, put out um, uh, some successful, some not so successful statements about racism. Um, we've seen uh, at the University of Kentucky, Vanessa, our football coach, led his football team downtown in a march with a Black Lives Matter uh, uh, T-shirt on, right? Like this is a, like as symbolic as these things are, these are really uh, moments in, in which uh, like a month ago, you would have not ever expected any of this to have happened, uh, especially because we were in a pandemic a month ago. But, uh, but you know, but any of this, right? Like, I mean, this is, you know, we experienced Ferguson and and in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin, the aftermath of Sandra Bland. Bland. Uh, we, we've seen all these protests and, uh, and they did not receive or gain the kind of traction that we've seen in this moment. So this is a pretty, pretty important historical uh, moment. And, and what the end is, is very unclear at this moment. I mean, I think that it's ultimately very, very encouraging to see the way that even 
the, what the protest is demanding has shifted so drastically and that in the streets in real time, uh, activists uh, and people participating in the protest are connecting the important cultural work that monuments do, that, you know, product branding does, that, you know, how companies are structured does. They're able to connect that with the ways that uh the police are there to enforce these hierarchies and that they're not just saying, let's surveil the police. Let's just, or saying, you know, let's, we want to see the police arrested, though they are saying that too. They're also saying, take their money. We want <laughs> their money to go into and it's <laughs> listing, you know, line items, right? Like, and here right. are the places that money can go, you know, <laughs> that's, that's very different. It's a new, it's a very different way of immediately connecting those things. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, it's like, it's like, we've, you know, we've got both the, the protesters, the activists and the accountants all in this movement. Oh right? yeah. The, oh yeah. The, the accountants are like, yo, I need, uh, you offered a 4% reduction. We're going to need 7% and we're going to move it into these areas. Right. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Like I know in Los Angeles, they were talking about cutting, you know, like 150 million. And the first thing I saw in response was like, that's only 1% of the budget, right? Like it was, <laughs> that's a big <laughs> budget for the LAPD. Yeah. Right. But they were like, but they were like, you know, it's still 1%, right? Like we, need more than one percent and so like it's it's very interesting to see how these ideas that have been percolating in academia for decades um you know angela davis is talking about prison abolitionists uh, abolition others are talking about you know uh police reform in really kind of structure structural ways and so this is a fantastic moment as scholars and 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 this is in our world this is clearly transferred into the sports world where uh, we've watched, um, you know, coaches and athletic programs and leagues all come to proclaim Juneteenth as something that we're as a holiday because we need to to do this without any kind of history or whatever. They just know black people want like Juneteenth and uh, we are trying to stop that smoke right now. Right. I mean NASCAR banned Confederate flags. I don't. Oh, yeah, I don't know yeah, if y'all. Yeah. I don't know if y'all cover stock car racing and the, the sports spectrum, but I. I certainly would not have had that on my bingo card for 2020. I was not prepared. Yeah. Uh, when the when when the rebellion started, there's no way you would have told me that that was going to be an outcome. Like yeah, like, no. Of like of the, of the things that are going to be accomplished out of this, like you would have been like NASCAR is going to give up. Confederate flags, <laughs> the Confederate flag, that and NFL saying Black Lives Matter. Like, I'm yeah, that just... was yeah, that was definitely not in my predictions. Yes, but and what could have been in the predictions was the univer- the emails from the universities. <laughs> oh yes, that have cut our that have cut our budget, but want to tell us how much they care, what they're gonna do. So, sorry, sorry if that put anyone on the spot there, but I got that email today. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, it's it's a fantastic. You know, I'm super excited, and and I want to thank Vanessa for giving us really this rich, this rich history of Juneteenth and Emancipation Days and Black celebration more broadly, right? Um, um, I think the 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 June nineteenth, twenty twenty celebration of Juneteenth, it will have to go down in history as the one in which this predominantly Black holiday that had been celebrated. 
uh, in variety of local communities all over the country has somehow now jumped into the national mainstream. I suspect right. next year we're going to have, you know, Juneteenth sales at Target and whatnot. <laughs> um, right. But in the, in the right. same way, we saw the kind of the, the corporate co-op co-optation of, of Martin Luther King Day. But like, I think this is a, an interesting and kind of powerful moment uh, in which is a an unintended consequence of the kind of activists in the street who have been calling, uh, you know, tremendous attention to structural racism uh, and, and policing and, and judicial uh, affairs and, and, and more broadly in our country. Uh, and so this is a fantastic that the sports world has been, in ra- you know, kind of ensnared into this broader context. Right. I, I think on that note, man. We should uh, get out of here. But before that, I just got to let people know a great, great Juneteenth gift. I fight for a living or we will win today. Or, Derek. Blood, sweat, and tears. Get it for right, your friends. Go, yeah. go get it. Don't go to Target. Go get you some books. All right. Peace. <laughs> peace. <laughs>